Hello, I'm Michael Brodeur, and welcome to Leaders Alliance. We are a global community of kingdom-minded leaders who are passionate about helping you become the world-changing leader that God created you to be. Join the conversation. Welcome to the Leaders Alliance YouTube channel and podcast. Um, I'm filling in for your host, Michael Berdor. Um, He is in Brazil today, and there's spotty internet connection that has a problem hosting this type of stuff. And so what I'll be doing, I'm, I'm, I'm a catalyst for Leaders Alliance, and you might remember me from past episodes of the podcast. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm also a filmmaker. I made the film Send Proof. It's about miracles with medical evidence, if you want to check it out. Just go to sendproof, S-E-N-D-proof.com. But what I, I, I'm very excited about is hosting uh, Mark and uh, Cheryl Perry. Uh, they're church planners, entrepreneurs, brilliant people. And this is going to be a great podcast. And so welcome to the show, Mark and Cheryl. Hello. Thank you, Elijah. Well, I, I'm interested in your story. Um, and so you guys are catalytic leaders here at Leaders Alliance, and your heart is to help grow, you know, be mentors, catalysts for helping grow God's church. But I, w- I want to hear how do you guys meet, um, kind of a little bit about your background and what got you into church planning and entrepreneurial work in the first place. Okay. Sure. How we met, this is a fun story because um, I was in college and I was living in a house with nine other gals and Mark's sister was one of those gals. And um, my pastor's wife actually at the time had said to me probably like a month before, hey, have you seen that new guy, Mark Perry? And I was like, I have, he's (laughs) wow. So then I came home from work one night and he was sitting at my kitchen table, which was super intimidating. But um, yeah, so that's actually how we met around uh, the kitchen table at my house when I lived with his sister, Michelle, which was so mm-hmm. fun. So that's how we met. And then anything else you want to add, Mark? Yeah, we met at church before that. <laughs> so I, I, maybe you can give your background too, Cheryl, but I was not raised in a Christian home. I, used, I was born and raised in Virginia at 16, my parents were going through a divorce. We moved to Arizona and then we moved to California. They were trying to patch up their marriage. I was in two brand new schools in in my sophomore year of high school. So I was, it was difficult. You know, I had two jobs before we left. And uh, so I was in a, I wasn't in a broken place, but a lonely place. And uh, Mm -hmm. somebody came up to me and it was the very end of the Jesus movement. They sort of shared Jesus with me. And I, I went along to go to church because I didn't have any friends. Yeah. And I'd go to church every week and I didn't understand a word that it was all blah, 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 blah. I had no, no idea what they were saying. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand a word. And then one day my ears opened and I could hear the message. I, I, mm. I, it, was, it was shocking. And I heard the message and I ran forward to receive Jesus. And, and my life turned around in a radical way. Mm-hmm. And I began to share Jesus on the streets and with my friends and with my family. I joined the speech team at on, in my high school and I began to give speeches about Jesus Christ throughout California and um, mm. yeah and so I wanted to uh, 
I, I wanted to become a missionary and go to India and live by faith. And uh, my parents forbid me to do that. And I was like, Lord, should I, should I listen to them? And mm-hmm. the Lord said, honor your father and mother. It'll go well with you. So I, mm-hmm. I went to the local university. I got a degree in communication and I decided I wanted to be a pastor. And uh, so it was after I went to college and then graduate school, during graduate school, I was a grad and Cheryl was an undergrad. We met, we were both going to the same college mm-hmm. and um fell in love, got married and um, started having children. And then a few years after that, I had done a lot of ministry already up to that point. Mm-hmm. But a few years after that, we decided to do our first small group together and it just mm-hmm. began to grow. Yeah. And, uh, and then we did another one and that grew. Mm-hmm. And then our pastor invited us on staff. And then we ended up helping him plant a church, which was called the Five Cities Vineyard. And, um, and then he gave he gave us leadership of that church after about a year, mm-hmm. and we became the pastors of that church. It was about seventy five when we got it. Uh, we left uh, four years later. It was about two hundred fifty, maybe three hundred at the most. Mm-hmm. And we left that church and we went to Akron, Ohio. The Lord asked us to go start a church among the poor, mm-hmm. and so we did. We went to a lower economic, racially mixed mm-hmm. city, industrial city that we'd never been to. Mm-hmm. And we had no team. We It was my wife and I and our three daughters. And we started mm-hmm. a church by just talking to our neighbors and going to Walmart. And, and uh, the church grew. And it was mm-hmm. awesome. So uh, that's kind of our early days. Mm-hmm. And so you guys said at, over time you moved into an entrepreneurial space where you're still doing church stuff. And um I'm interested in that because a lot of people go thinking entrepreneurial and Jesus don't mix, especially in church, never use anything you've learned in the business world in church. And so how do you work through that theologically and and process like, hey, we need systems. We need stuff like that. Like talk, talk to me about that. Yeah. My friends and I call it being spirit filled and smart. I I think you can actually do a church service that's both planned and spontaneous at the same time. Right. I, I just think it's all of that's possible. We're both and people. We're not either or people. Mm. And so we believe you can do two things equally well. We're Renaissance people. We're Renaissance mm-hmm. thinkers. We don't think uh, you have to stay in your lane. We think it's good to stay in your lane in terms of your strengths. Mm-hmm. But there's a big world out there. And what's fascinating to me is that both of us have received numerous prophetic words from very credible people that were called to multiple things that mm-hmm. were both called to business. We're both called to politics. We're called to media and entertainment. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mentioned to you earlier, we were on a TV show and that was prophesied by Shara. Her name used to be Pradam. Now she's Chalmers, but ah, yeah, I know her prophesied yeah. that entire thing before it happened. It was fascinating to watch it unfold. There were a thousand families that applied to be on this TV show. We were the only family that did not apply and we were selected. They recruited us. They recruited us. And it was an amazing opportunity to tell our story and to speak to the nations about, uh, you know, about our daughter not getting an abortion, but Mm -hmm. her baby being saved because of a prophetic word from God. And I mean, it was a fascinating opportunity. Mm -hmm. We had producers run out of the room crying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think too, just that question about um, entrepreneurial, like 
it is who we are. In order mm -hmm. to start and pioneer a church, you actually have to be entrepreneurial. You know, you have mm -hmm. to be able to go and meet people and start something new. That takes a certain kind of skill. And I think it's not valued enough in one sense within the local church because um, like we, we're supposed to be the ones going out, going out, going out. But so much of the time, the church is like, stay in, stay in, stay in. And our big heart has always been to send people out, like equip, right. empower, send them out. That's really what, because that's what we've done. And that's mm -hmm. been our call. And then doing the entrepreneurial aspect of that, it's like um, just different opportunities have come up. And we've felt like God wants to do that at the same time as doing church and planting churches you know we've had mm -hmm. both had very successful businesses and um that we ran and then sold for profit and then mm -hmm. start another one you know so and that's actually been even in our in our church we had that we have a second um 501c3 a non-profit a charitable one not a religious uh, one no. and to start businesses because how do you meet people people are in the world they're not always coming to your church and so we just have such a heart to really get the kingdom out into the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Michael Berder likes to say that um, when you have a pastor-based church, and this is not a slight against pastors, this is just a natural outflow of their gifting and calling, but pastors like to gather and protect because mm -hmm. that's what shepherds do. They, they feed right. and protect their flock. They're not necessarily dreaming of how to get 10 more sheep, they're thinking, you know, like the like in Luke 15, I've got a hundred and one of them's missing. Where's that one? I'm going to take mm -hmm. care of it. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to get it out of the barbed wire. It's going to come back into the fold. We're not going to have any wolves, and that's how pastors are wired. They're protective, they're they're nurturing, and that is a that's a big gift. That's a that's mm -hmm. a God given gift. But apostolic people are thinking how to gather, equip, and send. They're not thinking mm -hmm. how to gather and protect. Although obviously we want to protect, but they're thinking how to multiply, how to build, how to reproduce, how to create more impact. And mm -hmm. I've been thinking that way since my first job. I was 11 years old. My dad worked as a car, as a sales manager at a car dealership. And I picked up use, I picked up cigarette butts at the car lot. That was my yeah. first. My second job, I was 12 years old. I got a donut route with Krispy Kreme and I would carry a big box of six packs of donuts and I'd go on the streets and I'd sell them. Yeah. And uh, my third job, I was 13 years old and I had a paper route. When I was 15, I, I worked as a busboy at a country club and a lifeguard at a hotel pool. And they were both illegal. That You weren't allowed yeah. to work till you're 16, but the, right. I somehow got the job. So yeah. when I was 14, I became a caddy. Like th that was just my, yeah. I, didn't even, I didn't know any better. I thought that was normal life. I was shocked mm -hmm. when I became a pastor and found out there are people without a work ethic. I'm, I'm like, are you yeah. kidding me? I, I never yeah. heard of such a thing. Yeah. And I'm not a workaholic either. I just, I love to be fruitful. I love to create, right. I love to produce. And so to me, work is a joy. It's not a burden. Mm -hmm. It's not something that takes away from my wife and family. It's just like, yeah, you work. That's what you do. It's mm -hmm. a joy. But I think that some people get stuck in this victim mindset that work is some sort of curse. And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to work. So you guys and I were talking a little bit before the podcast and... I was expressing this frustration is I've, I've worked in the church, executive pastor, everything's slow. And then <laughs> I've worked in the business world and I say, build me a book cover and overnight this happens and it's a 10. Yeah. And I don't know, how do you 
go into churches and go, hey, let's let's learn this efficiency thing or think critically about how we produce stuff and what we shouldn't be doing. Can you guys speak into that? I think really, like like you were saying about systems are important. We were talking about that earlier. Right. And sometimes um, systems or strategic thinking even um, can be seen as not such a great thing in the church. But we need mm -hmm. that. We need things to be made excellent because we're mm -hmm. serving our king. And mm -hmm. so as we've led churches, you know, we've really tried to equip our teams to have that standard of excellence mm -hmm. and, and help them understand kind of what they should be doing and what they shouldn't mm -hmm. be doing and um, not see that as a bad thing. Like it is mm -hmm. life skills. We are supposed to help people grow in into their personhood. And if you're on our team as an intern, as a person who's on our staff, whatever it is, we want to help grow you. And so we've sort of just set that culture from the beginning. Like when they sign up, you know, we take them through our, our manual and say, these are our expectations and that's fair. And you're agreeing mm -hmm. to this. So we get to mm -hmm. speak in. Yeah. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think it's so slow and how it can change. Ooh. <laughs> yes. That sounds yes good. That's a preacher right there. These are all based on experience. Yeah. So the first yeah. one is I just became president of the harvest festival, which is a local festival in our town. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's all volunteer. It's another organization. It's a nonprofit called the Harvest Festival. So I'm actually CEO of three nonprofits right now. Mm -hmm. Everyday Church. We have a second uh, charity. So that's a religious corporation. The second charitable corporation that we started is called Hope United. That's to run all of our businesses through. Mm -hmm. And we have businesses in our church and in our ministry. The third one is the community one I'm doing called Harvest Festival. And I've discovered something. Cause I hadn't done any nonprofits outside of my world till I ran this nonprofit. And it is, it, you think the church is slow? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So here's, here's one of the issues. Nonprofits tend to operate with silo thinking rather mm -hmm. than integration thinking. They are not really a team. It's, it's a person who says, Hey, I'm a busy professional. I'm going to give four hours a week to this nonprofit and that's it. So they, they do their little part. And then you can't ask them anything else. You can't even get, I like we have 50 people on our team. I can get 10 to a meeting in the nonprofit, in the community, because people are, t they'll, they'll tell me at the beginning, um, I can, I can do my part, but I can't come to any meetings. Yeah. Don't ask me to do anything else. So what they're thinking, they're thinking silo. They're not thinking like owners, right? They're thinking like mm -hmm. silo contributors, like, Hey, you're privileged to have me for four hours a month or a week or whatever. Don't ask me to do anything else. I don't care about the mission. I care about my little spot. I want people right. to, to volunteer. So nonprofits in general have an issue of silo thinking that you have to get them to be integrated, which is through ownership. You have so so we have to get owners in nonprofits, not silo thinkers. The second mm -hmm. thing is that there's a there's a lack of understanding about the difference between family and team. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. So Talk to me about that. In a church, everyone's in the family, but not everyone's on the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This this became super apparent to me. We visited a, a I won't say what city, yeah. but we were in we were in Brazil, visited a, a missions base, and they had so many problems at this missions base because it was a popular missions base. So people would hear about it in the U.S. or wherever they were from, and they would think, Ah, I'm going to go there and find my tribe. So they were literally coming for family. 
Oh. But some of the people on the team were there. They they were there because of team. They were they don't even care about family. They just want to get the mission done. All they they wake up in the morning. They're like, what village are we going to hit today? So you had these people that were di in dichotomy about what their purpose was. Some of them weren't really there to reach anyone. They were there to get along with their other missionary friends and go out to coffee and have lattes. And that's why they were there. They wanted a family on the mission field. It was a romanticized idea of family. Mm -hmm. Then you had other people that were sort of like almost anti-family. They were there because they believed in the mission. They were missionaries. Right. They were, that family team dynamic, if you don't have understanding about that, it will split any work. It's the reason why the number one, the number one reason missions fails is because missionaries can't get along. Mm -hmm. The reason they can't get along is they don't understand the difference between family and team. So family, everyone's in the family, not everyone's on the team. Team is a subset of family, and each one requires a different level of buy-in. And if you're not in healthy family, you shouldn't be on the team. Mm -hmm. Because if you're in the team, you're on the team and you're not part of family, you're going to mess up the family. On the other hand, if you're a dysfunctional family member, you'll mess up the team. So that has to be a sequenced reality. Mm -hmm. And in most nonprofits, it's not even paid attention to. Mm -hmm. I think... So, I think one thing that you say regarding that, Mark, I'll just jump in, Elisha, really quick, is that team is 80% task and 20% relationship, and family is the opposite. 80% relationship, 20% team. Mm, that's good, yeah. So if you're on the team kind of running the church, but you're doing 80% relationship rather than the 80% task, that's where the slowness can come in. Because you feel like, well, I'm doing my job, but what is your job really? And yeah. so that's a that's an important distinction. Yeah. One one more thing about this, Elijah, and then I'll I'll stop. Okay. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau that when yeah. uh, Jacob when Esau finally came to see Jacob as an adult and ja Jacob was afraid. He had been with Laban uh, for a number of years, and he finally heard his brother was coming, and he sent out gifts and offerings to appease him. And anyway, when Esau rode up on his horse, he he didn't assault Jacob for betraying him and stealing his birthright. He just said, Hey bro, let's ride together. And mm -hmm. Jacob said something very interesting. He said, I can't ride with you because if I do, the women and children will suffer. The slow ones in our family will suffer. So what you have is you have a tension between the guy who wants to ride as a team mm -hmm. and the guy who wants to slow down for family. And mm -hmm. the problem with family is you have to go to the least common denominator. So family moves as fast as the slowest member. That's good. Yeah. Team moves as fast as the leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're going in different paces completely. Okay. So let, let me throw this out real quick. If you're watching this and you're going, man, I, I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm a little stuck. Come join the leaders Alliance and, uh, get under these guys they'll teach you how to be catalyst um and so well let me ask you this i'm a pastor i'm recognizing these things in my church all right you you just define this you just define that how do i lead a dysfunctional church or nonprofit or business into this type of thinking because i i assume you've taken place people who had to transition so how do you go through this transition over oh, to family? We're too task oriented. How do you do it? First, you have to create understanding. So this yeah. has to be taught in a non-belligerent, you know, non-hostile way. It can't be accusing. 
It's right. not accusing. It's it's actually I'm I'm I I shoot really straight, but I'm not accusing. Like mm-hmm. people that come to our church and don't want team, there's nothing wrong with them. They could come That's because great. they're broken. They could come because they're hurting. They could mm-hmm. come because they just came out of an abusive relationship. And a lot of pastors think wrong about that. Mm-hmm. They're like, I got to get this person on the team, and that person. The worst thing you can do is take someone with a broken leg and say, Hey. We need to rehabilitate you by getting you to walk right away. It's like, no, that person needs to lay in bed for six months. And then mm-hmm. where there's other people who have a, they have a sprain and they may need to walk. So you got to know your person. You got to know what they need. And some people need to be in the family. They just came out of a, they just came out of, of a performance oriented church. And what they need mm-hmm. from you as a pastor is to say, you don't have to do a dang thing here. You are loved, accepted. And we just want you to hang out and be with us. Let us know when you're ready, but your value is not based on what you do for us. That's right. And they need to hear that over and over and over. And it may take six months before they're ready to do anything. And if you are right. impatient in that process, you're going to injure them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are people that will never do anything unless you give them a little push. <laughs> and you, yeah. you got to know you got to know when to push and you got to know when not to push. So mm. I would say if you're a pastor and you're realizing you got to define the terms, you got to let people know there is a family. Mm-hmm. There is a team. If you're not on the team, you're still, you're, everyone's amazing. Some of, I, I personally believe the entire local church is called to be hundred percent family and hundred percent team, mm-hmm. but it's impossible practically for everyone to be on the team at every moment of the day, mm-hmm. because we might have somebody who led two small groups for five years and they're burned out and they may need three months of recovery time. Mm-hmm. So if your standard is hundred percent team, you're going to burn those people out. Mm-hmm. So I think just expectations, we go through seasons. So for example, we'll say to our small group leaders, we'd like you to lead a small group for a maximum of two years. And then we want you to take six months off and join a group. And mm-hmm. we say that just to protect them. Now, some of them are amazing and they plow through their marriage is healthy. Their devotional life with God is healthy. And we let them go past that. But a lot of them, we just say, Hey, just take a break, you know, because mm-hmm. we want them to be at their best. And we know that burnout happens. And so I think stewarding that, defining it is really key. And then I think also there's a bunch of other answers, but I'll just, I'll stop there. There's a bunch of other things to say about that. Oh, well, well, that's good stuff. Um, So Cheryl, talk to me about being a healthy pastor and female perspective (laughs) on this because you're married and like the marriage is hard in ministry and a lot a lot of times we can talk to the men about it but then there's the the wife side and so can you talk to me about that sure i think there really i think there has to be some allowance for the woman's gifting as well mm-hmm. so some pastor senior leaders wives really want to be a part like me i love strategy i love trying to make things better mm-hmm. i want things to grow i love the church i want to i have input there are other pastor's wives who really just want to attend, maybe teach Sunday school, maybe teach this or that, or do something else, and that's fine. So just like with anyone else in our church, we're not going to make people do things that they're not called to. And so there has to be allowance for that. On the other side of that, there does have to be allowance for people like me, women like me, who really want to have a part. Like I have a lot to say, and I want to bring what I, the gifts that I have to the forefront. And so there has been, it's an interesting dynamic as a woman and as a pastor's wife, as well as senior leader. You know, it's like there are, I have different roles to play. 
number one is to support my husband. Like that's my main job is to support Mark and believe in him and do what he's asking us to do as my pastor, as my husband. Mm. So there are roles. Yeah. And I think sometimes I can be guilty of forgetting that because I'm his mm. wife and I think of him, oh, that's just Mark, my husband. But sometimes I'm like, no, wait a minute, he's my pastor. In one sense, he's my boss, even though I'm on the staff and we're mm. kind of co-lead. So he is my boss too. And yeah. I think sometimes uh, as women, we kind of get snooty about that, but yeah. it's just a reality. And rather than fighting that, just accepting that, really knowing our place. And I'm not, I'm not a women's rights advocate, but I am. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, it has to be both. Like I have to have a biblical understanding of who I am in Christ, who I am with my husband and who I am in the church and my role. So I always joke, I always tell people, I want to write a book called Yes, I'm the pastor's wife. Mm -hmm. And it's like, because that's how I'm introduced, but people don't even know half the stuff I do. If I oversee mm -hmm. all of Sunday morning, if I put down, like I build teams yeah. like crazy, they don't know that, but do I really need them to? So yeah. I'm not trying to make a place for myself, but I have to be secure in who I am. Have you guys ever had to define expectations for you, Cheryl, uh, as, you know, some people go, the pastor's wife has to show up at this lunch and this uh, thing on the weekend and, or, or she's not doing her role. And well, it's unpaid entirely. Yeah, yeah, no, I've been on, I mean, I've been on our staff, so I've been on the executive team. Okay. So my role as pastor has been similar to other people we hire and employ. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had that. Um, I have had job descriptions because I have a job. And so mm -hmm. that's part of my job to do those things because that's what I get paid for. Yeah, um, and the job descriptions can eliminate kind of those false expectations by people. So that that's good. Yeah, um, I think too, I think, you know, um, Cheryl's, I'm a, I'm a champion of my wife because not only because she's married to me and I'm married yeah. to her, but because she's actually a, a phenomenal leader. Like she mm -hmm. actually cares about, she sees things I don't see. And I'm not saying that with any false humility. That's just the truth. I think that she's not as much of a public persona in terms of like preaching. Like I'm very quick on my feet. She's more of like a prophetic preacher. She would, she would get a message from God. She'd think on it for a month or two and then she'd deliver it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that the grueling pace of preaching each week would be well suited for her. Right. But all the rest, all the rest of the job of the church, she could easily run the church. Mm -hmm. And if she had a preaching team, I think she could run the church as good mm -hmm. as I can. So I actually believe that about her, number one. And number two, I treat her that way. But she also recognizes that I carry this sort of burden and fire that, you know, that I can't get rid of. I think our adjustment has been we're both very strong leaders True. and trying to figure out what does that look like in a staff environment? And I don't think, by the way, that every spouse should get paid. I think that sometimes sure. is milking the church, you know, but right. in this particular case, I would put Cheryl's staff ability up against any, any executive pastor, any, she can run things as well as anybody I've seen. Mm -hmm. So she deserves a paycheck. Like she shouldn't just be, you know, meekly behind me and then come to all these meetings and do all these ministries that are relegated to women and then not get paid. On the other hand, there are some women that that's appropriate for them. They're not really leading they're a presence and because mm -hmm. they're a presence and they believe in the local church, they shouldn't get paid for just showing up. Like we don't pay Cheryl to be a member any more than we pay me to be a member. Right. 
we pay her to do a job and we pay mm -hmm. me to do a job. And so we've done That's it without good. pay. We don't care about the paycheck. We, we, uh, labor is worthy of us hired, but we don't do it for money to begin with. So I, I think some of those things need to be worked through and talked yeah. about, and there needs to be accountability because there are couples that milk the church and they mm -hmm. the one spouse or the other doesn't really do much. And that's inappropriate. I do remember getting my first paycheck from everyday church where we are now, because I mean, you know, I think at that time we had been doing churches for 12 years or something already. Mm -hmm. And I did all the same things without pay. I just had young kids at home, so I couldn't be at the office and, you know, right. just didn't work. but I was still overseeing Sunday morning. I was still overseeing, um, you know, all of the kingdom kids stuff. I did oversee mm -hmm. worship. Like I did, I oversaw all these things, built teams, did all of it. And then, and then something happened and I, I actually got put on the staff at Everyday Church, <laughs> which is super funny. But I remember getting my first paycheck from the church going, wow, like I've been doing this all along. And yeah, whether I get a check or don't get a check, I serve Jesus because I mm -hmm. love him. Yeah. And so then that switched to become my job. Like I didn't have another job that I sold my business and I started working for the church. And so mm -hmm. that, it was just appropriate. Well, let me take this an entirely different direction. So you guys, your systems people, your entrepreneurs, and this is the thing that can happen to all of us entrepreneurs. We can build anything. We can <laughs> go, all right, we'll build this system. How do you get the fire and passion of the Holy Spirit or our gift mix, all that dopamine's coming in from being successful and you can run things and go, I'm not even involving the Holy Spirit. Hmm. How, how do you go, all right, God, we're doing this together and I'm not giving up this part of myself, rather I'm yielding it to you. Does that make sense? What I'm asking? I think, I think there's one answer. God, the greater your leadership call, the more God will kill you so he can use you. There's absolute death in ministry. The more God can entrust you with, the more he needs to make sure you're dead. And, and I know that's a very unpopular message, but most of us are aware of the birth, death, and fulfillment of a vision. It's, it's in the life of Abraham where God said, you're going to be a great nation. For 24 years, 25, he waited for a son. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had, he had uh, Ishmael, but, but the son of promise, he waited 25 years. And when the boy was, what, in his teen years, the Lord said, kill him, mm -hmm. which was, he didn't mean, but he was testing, yeah. he was testing. And Abraham had to go through the death of a vision. He had to think, I don't know, what does this even mean? What is, mm -hmm. I've only had one son. First of all, God's promised me to father of many nations. I've only had one son. And now he's saying, kill the one son. He had to go through, he had to, uh, A.W. Tozer in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God, chapter two, it's called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And it's basically Abraham's hand. Let me see if I can get my hand over here. It had to go from closed fist to open. Mm -hmm. That's literally what happened. Abraham held the call of God with an open hand and a loose grip from that point forward. He still believed in it. He still celebrated the testimony of God, but he knew it wasn't his. And I think that if you don't go through the death process, you'll always try to squeeze blood out of a turnip and you'll use the church for your own entrepreneurial mm wishes ah. and desires. You'll try to make the church fulfill your calling. Yeah. And that's why you have so many entrepreneurial pastors where the members feel squeezed. They mm -hmm. feel like, wow, and use. yeah, it feels like you're using me to fulfill your destiny. But if you don't, if you don't die, you'll do that. So the danger of an entrepreneurial person is not that they're entrepreneurial. It's that they haven't died. Mm. 
Paul that's, said, that's I die really daily. Good. Like I'm telling you, you got to die so you can live. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. If you hang on to it, if you cling to it, you'll lose it. And I think there's too many pastors who should have started businesses and they didn't. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. And, and I think they're trying to get their jollies, their, their entrepreneurial dopamine through the church and it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think it's causing, caused a lot of problems over the, over the decades. Was there ever a point where you guys were like, we've got to die? Or oh, yeah. God killed a vision. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, when we moved to um, Akron, Ohio, to plant our church there, um, that's when that the Lord gave us the opportunity to die there. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was really, I felt when we moved from the Five Cities Vineyard to plant a, a vineyard church in o Akron, Ohio, there was no vineyard in that mm -hmm. particular area. Vineyard did not have a presence there. And so it was, we were nobodies from nowhere. And it was the best thing for us because on when we were doing the five cities vineyard we were kind of becoming known our church was becoming known and um but it's that that issue of unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies you know it's like you have to die to yourself and so we learned that we had the opportunity while church planting and it was the best thing for us because it really wasn't about us it was about building his kingdom. It was about bringing Jesus to the people that we encountered. And it just sort of, in one sense, purified our motives. And so it wasn't about us anymore. It really was about what he called us to do. Mm. So Cheryl's touching on something. I want to just sort of give you the story because I think it'll help flesh that yeah. out in real time with real situations. So we're we're building this church called the Five Cities Vineyard. Our worship leader, his name was Scott Underwood. He was one of the most internationally recognized. He ended up being the number one worship leader in the vineyard. We did an album. Like yeah, it was, yeah. we were stars on the rise. If you look right. at it that way, we didn't think of ourselves that way, but we were in our movement. Our church was growing. We're getting well known. The Lord spoke to me out of John chapter 12, what Cheryl quoted. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this is what he said. I want you to go to Akron and die. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. The next thing that happened, I'm standing on the hill in Pismo Beach overlooking the Central Coast. And the Lord speaks to me and he says, go to Akron, plant a church and do it my way. And I said, I thought I was doing it your way. And he didn't answer me. <laughs> the next thing that happened, I'm preparing our church for our departure and I'm preaching a series on change. I walked down the center aisle after my message, shaking hands and hugging people. And I come to this old French prophet named Mr. Mason. He was in a wheelchair and he grabs both of my hands and he starts weeping mm. and he, he he's choked up. And he says, son, it's going to be so hard. <laughs> and he says, he says, you're going to make it, but barely. That's what he says to me. Wow. Then I get to Akron. And for various reasons, Mike Bickle and I ended up in a conversation on the phone. And I tell Mike Bickle, the leader of IHOP, I tell him our, just a bit of our story. And he says, oh, I know what's happening. God sent you to Akron to kill you so he can use you. Yeah. He, he did, I didn't tell him any of the death stuff. Mm -hmm. So four different times the Lord said, I'm going to kill you so mm -hmm. I can use you. And mm -hmm. I thought, I don't even know what that means, but okay. Yeah, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. And that's absolutely what happened. Like we came back. You know, John Wimber used to say, never trust a leader without a limp. Mm -hmm. He's talking about Jacob wrestling with the angel of God mm -hmm. and he ended up with a limp, but he got, got yeah. the blessing. Yeah. 
And I think there's a truth to that. Now, that's not a good prosperity word because people hate that. No, no, we, we're going to go from glory to glory, greater, greater, mm-hmm. strength, strength. But the truth of the matter is, is that God doesn't trust a leader without a limp. Mm-hmm. And he has to get you to the place where he can actually trust you and use you. And you have to know it's about him. I remember getting a prophetic word from a lady. She said, God's going to give you the desires of your heart. But when you finally get them, you're not going to care. Mm. And I thought that's a good word right there. Yeah. Because the reward of ministry is friendship with Jesus. It's not, oh, amen. Amen. it's not the gold pot at the end of the rainbow. Like mm-hmm. if that's what you're living for, you stub your toe right out of the gate. But it's about friendship with God which mm-hmm. is, in, which is, you know, Heidi says all fruitfulness flows from intimacy. And we believe that like we mm-hmm. like, and when you're dead, you can do it. You can do it all. Right. You, God can hand you millions of dollars and they can flow through your fingers or you can hold on to it. It doesn't matter. You don't care. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, that is the number one issue. And I'm telling you right now in culture, there's an anti-death spirit in a bad sense. Like obviously none of us want to die physically, but we are we are suffering avoidant we are absolutely trying the best we can to avoid suffering at all costs and even jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered it's it's a misnomer that you can get to your destiny without suffering it's completely false let me ask you guys this this is something i even struggle with is there's a difference between like hurting people's feelings like oh you changed the paint color that hurts my feelings and didn't talk to me and then harm which is people doing relationship damage um and as a leader you have to make unpopular decisions and all of us want to be loved and as we're navigating church life this comes up all the time is sometimes the slowest person you're talking about is we need to slow down and other times we need to just this is the right thing to do how do you get your heart right in those moments to make the hard decision and to be healthy through that process when you're not liked? Does that make sense? What I'm trying to ask? hundred percent. Yeah. That's the hardest thing about ministry, right? There. I, know it is. I think you have to first, it sort of goes back to what we were saying, because it's not about, it's not about me. So whether I'm really well liked or, or not, I'm actually doing what God's called me to do. And if people in our church believe that, you know, I'm a leader and I have to give difficult news or difficult decision or something they don't like, like I have to be secure in who I am. And if I'm not healthy and who I am as a person before Jesus, that's going to come out. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that my life is I I am a healthy leader in and of myself is super Mm -hmm. important. And I, some, I think sometimes as leaders, we neglect that because we don't want to be seen as weak or we don't know where to go to get healing, but just having that um, value for being Mm -hmm. a healthy person emotionally in order to talk to people and bring hard things. I think that's the, you sort of have to start there. You have to have, you have to have a tender heart and rhinoceros skin. (laughs) you have to if you don't if you don't develop a lot of people get rhinoceros skin but they become hard-hearted other Mm -hmm. people have a tender heart but they get wounded so much they're they just they're a basket case all the time and we have to have both i'm telling you if you if you don't have a sort of an apostolic strength Mm -hmm. you can't lead you can't because it's it's lonely 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of attack. Uh, if you, you know, people that have never led shouldn't criticize leaders. They don't mm-hmm. have the right. You really have to walk in a leader's shoes. I think it was Peter Drucker that said the three most difficult jobs in the world, which is, again, I'm not saying he's right, but it's interesting. He was a business consultant, president of the U.S., president of a university, local church pastor. Oh, now, yeah. Oh, that yeah. Sound, that may sound ridiculous, but the level yeah. of emotional abandonment, betrayal, uh, it's, it's, it's uncanny. And, you know, what happens when you're a church pastor is that you get asked to pay a bill that you didn't create all the time. So someone's daddy issues, someone's previous oh, leadership yeah. authority issues, they walk up to you and they hand you a bill and they say, pay that. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll trust you. So the, the relationship starts all wonky anyway. You shouldn't have to pay anybody else's bill, but people will ask you to do that all the time. And if you don't have thick skin, you'll run around trying to pay everyone's bill and you'll exhaust yourself and then you'll end up resenting people. Yeah. And you, you can't do that. You've got to forgive all the time, but you've got to be tough. You've got to know. I don't mean tough like mean. I mean, you've got to be tough to say, I love you, but you're all messed up and you need some healing, sweetheart, you know, or did you guys come into ministry with that strength or did God develop it? Well, tell us your stories of because everybody wants to hear about like, how'd you go become that? I remember, I remember being at a conference at the Anaheim Vineyard when I was, I'd been a pastor for two years Yeah, and this guy was ministering to me during ministry time. And he said, I see you in a hospital gown in the hospital. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, why did you make me a pastor when I'm so broken? Mm -hmm. So I started broken. I still have brokenness, but I started broken. Mm -hmm. And I know God called me. So I'm like, Lord, why would you do that? Why don't you just Mm -hmm. recruit people that are fully whole? (laughs) But he just, he recruits us where we're at. And he, Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, I I didn't start. I was was so filled with shame when I started pastoring. I I apologized for my own shadow. I said, I'm sorry, every five seconds. Mm -hmm. I... I, I so wanted to please and bless people. I just, I would get so beat up, uh, mm-hmm. shame and guilt and all kinds of stuff, all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. My goodness. And then I, I went and I met with a church consultant mm-hmm. and this is what he said to me. I, there's two things that happen. I'll tell you, these are two things that really are story based that changed my life. The first one, I'm meeting with this church consultant. He says, how long does it take you to get over losing your best guy? And oh, I'm wow. like, I'm like, I don't know, a year? Yeah. He goes, if, if the answer's not 24 hours, you're messed up. Wow, that that's deep, dude. Yeah. Oh, I know. And I didn't agree with him. I thought, yeah. no, no, that's not, that's not good of healthy emotional processing. You know, right. you can't get over someone in 24 hours. But what he was saying was, when you're in a leadership position, people are looking to you as a leader, whether you feel like a leader or not, whether you want to lead or not, whether you feel qualified to lead or not. And how long does it take you before you start dealing with the problem is what he was trying to say. He wasn't saying emotionally, it might take you a year or more to get over losing that guy, but how long does it take you to start leading? So that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened is we were in Akron and I had gotten connected with this ministry called blood and fire that was in the inner city of Atlanta. This guy had a six figure job uh, and he left his job to go work in the inner city of Atlanta and was doing an amazing ministry, but he was a, he was a no BS kind of guy. He was a really cool guy, but had a hard edge. And he was awesome. I love this guy. And uh, and Cheryl and I were hurting so bad. We were planning this church and we we were ready to quit. I was ready to quit. 
I went to the doctor. I got antidepressants for the first time in my life. I've never, I never ended up taking them, but I took them for about two, about a week. And then I threw them away, but I, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just letting you know my story. I'm not, I'm not judging anyone who's taking antidepressants, but anyway, I, I was, for me, that was a low point. I was, I was like, I got to get, so I called our national director in, in the vineyard and I said, Hey, I think I'm done. I'm going to go ahead and get out of ministry. We're going to fold the church. We're going to resign. You can put a new pastor in place. And he said, I understand, Mark. Um, I know it's hard. Uh, we'll be, we'll stand with you. We'll get you through this. Then I called another guy that was over me. And I said the same thing. And he said, yeah, we'll get you through this. Don't worry. Uh, same exact thing. Sympathy, understanding. Mm -hmm. And it was very comforting. My friend David, who was in the inner city of Atlanta, working with the poor. And I said, David, and I gave him the same spiel. I'm quitting. It's not working. Yeah. And he, and he listened and he was quiet for a few seconds. And he said, Mark, I have one thing to say to you. And I said, what? And he said, lead. Yeah. And I was so offended. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how dare you say to me lead? Like I've been leading for a long time. We led a church to growth. We laid it mm-hmm. down. We came and died in Akron, Ohio. I was in the death right then, by the way. And I was, I didn't say any of this to him. I just said, okay, hey, thanks. Got off the phone as quick as I could and sulked and licked my wounds. And mm-hmm. But I thought about what he said and I thought, he's right. Mm-hmm. I need to lead. I, I need to do the last thing I want to do right now. Mm-hmm. And it saved my life. I'm still in ministry today because of that. Those two events saved me from quitting prematurely. Mm. I think for me, like, I just can remember just leading um, small groups of like healing groups. Mm -hmm. You know, we did this amazing healing thing called New Images and basically went through a workbook, a 12 week thing. Mm -hmm. We just did that. I did that. I led those groups. Mark and I led those groups, but I did some on my own as well Mm -hmm. um, over and over and over again. And just having that value for health, like fighting for health, fighting for, wow, I'm really hurting in this area. And I recognize my need for healing and then getting it. And even in the midst of church, like we're not, it's not like the church can't see you weak. I remember we were, we were, um, I was, uh, it was during a time in our season, whatever. And Mark was preaching this amazing message. And it was, I think about healing heart stuff. And I went forward and I was just sobbing my eyes out. I was just like on the ground crying because God was really needing me. And this late, this gal who ended up being a really good friend of mine, she came and um, later she had told me, wow, I was kind of scared to come to your church because here this, this pastor's wife is like bawling her eyes out on the, on the front row, like, and you can't, no one can console you. And then she's like, but then later I realized, wow, isn't that what we want? Like (laughs) we have a phrase in our church of, oh, always saying this, that never be ashamed of your need for God. And Mm. that is like, that's been our ministry. Like at t- different times I've needed healing. I've needed help. I need, my skin isn't as thick as it should be. And arrows have gotten through and I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. And I don't hide that from the people we lead with. I expose that so they can help me heal. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think that health aspect is not utilized as much in our churches. Like we we're right now, we're, we're in a healing group right now. You know, it's another time for healing. I'm we're in this group, and then I'm also leading this other Bible study right now on Saturday mornings. Um, and it's all about kind of your connection with God, your intimacy with God. And so, 
-hmm. it never stops. So we are continually fighting for health because we're called to be like Jesus and that mm -hmm. never changes until we go to heaven, <laughs> you know? So mm -hmm. wherever our area of our life is not like him, we need to change and become more like him. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think there's a lot of people out there, they're planning a church, they're leading an organization and they're doing it alone. And so what do you find, what value do you find in being in a group like Leaders Alliance? And, and what would you say to that person who's out there? I'm going through this. What would you say to them about, about the value of being in something like Leaders Alliance? I think everybody needs what uh, John Townsend calls coaches and comrades. Mm. Coaches are people that will pour into you and comrades are people that will walk with you. Amen. If you don't have those two things, you're, you're, you're going to be lonely, first of all, mm -hmm. and you're not going to reach your full potential because we're not, the only thing in creation that wasn't good was being alone. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everything That's else good. was great, but God said, this is not good. I'm not happy with this. I mm -hmm. created it and I'm not happy with it. And he mm -hmm. fixed it, you know? And uh, so I'm not saying God made a mistake. I'm just saying God saw the need and said, no, this isn't good enough. Uh, having a man by himself is not okay. And yet in ministry, it's the most common occurrence. You know, we have people that are all by themselves and mm -hmm. we need each other. So Leaders Alliance, uh, I think, will be as effective as we make it. If we dive mm -hmm. in and we start building relationship and asking for help and being vulnerable, the vulnerable. Some yeah. of that help we can get for free. Some of it we may have to pay for, but who cares? Mm -hmm. Cheryl and I, our most beneficial time in our marriage, we've been married 35 years, was about three or four years ago. We went and got paid counseling for a year and a half from a PhD therapist yeah. who did what's called emotionally focused therapy, which was phenomenal. Now, our mm -hmm. marriage wasn't in crisis in the sense that we were about to get divorced. We just needed to tune up on some skills mm -hmm. and we needed to make sure that our connection was solid. And we learned so much in that. Now, it wasn't like we learned new terms. We'd heard all the terms, but we learned how to apply them in a way we'd never applied before. Mm -hmm. If we wouldn't have submitted to that counsel, if we wouldn't have said, this person knows more than I do, and we're going to let them speak into our relationship, I don't think we'd be as far along as we are today mm -hmm. because she really helped us. Yes. And I think we all need coaches. And Cheryl and I have been doing this long enough. We still have coaches in our lives. But right. We we want to help others. This is hard. Yeah. And if people are willing to take the help, we're willing to give it. If they don't feel like they need it, it's okay. We're not going to force ourselves on mm -hmm. people. But hey, I believe that I'm delighted that Michael chose us for the church leadership catalytic mm -hmm. group because I think we can help. We can help lots of leaders, but we especially can help church leaders. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I think for me personally is being around people who are doing the stuff at higher levels um motivates me to die faster and to go through these processes you have people like you guys and i can hear your story and go hey i'm normal yes like, this is painful you know i and to hear the like i need to be able to get over this in 24 hours and lead and there's been seasons of my life where i've put stuff off four or five months because i was just in pain me and too me yeah. too. Done the and, same thing. And Christ is like, come and die. Yeah. yeah. Surrender everything and you'll find your life. And it's being around catalyst, I, I think, makes that process happen faster. And you see the kingdom come, not because we can facilitate or make God do anything. It's just when you yield to him quicker, 
um, you just see more of them, I, I think. And I, I, that's I why agree I like that, that, Elijah. That's our response time to God's leading mm -hmm. is what propels us or keeps us mm -hmm. from our destiny. Mm -hmm. You know, I think yeah. too, just you know, looking at the gospels and the disciples and the like, me, they got, they were hurt many times. You know, even mm -hmm. Jesus, our Lord. You know, I mean, he was hurting when John the Baptist died. You know, and was mm -hmm. killed. Like really fellowshipping with Christ's sufferings, like, and knowing that he does with us as well, like mm -hmm. he knows and, and not just sweeping it under the rug or pretending like it's not there, but actually acknowledging that, you know, even when Jesus met them when they were in the boat and he's like making breakfast for them, like, Hey guys, come and have breakfast. Mm -hmm. You know, they just, Peter just denied, you know, it's like, we just pretend like so much isn't happening, but it really is. And if we're honest with each other, in leaders alliance and say hey i am in the boat but i'm really hurting i want to go to jesus on the shore but i don't even know how to get there like if mm -hmm. we can be that real in leaders alliance with our groups our catalyst groups mm -hmm. and go really really far mm -hmm. can i just say elijah that right now uh well we did we did a leader school for iris global for seven years called iris mm -hmm. leader school and we wrote a curriculum with seven major areas. And the first area was called safe leaders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the, the first two areas, one was called safe and the other was called secure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We believe safe and secure leaders is the foundation for leadership. And I don't think there are that many safe, secure leaders out there. I think mm -hmm. it's really, it's become increasingly hard to be safe and secure because if you don't, if you don't die, first of all, you can't be safe and secure. Mm-hmm. And if you resist death, you're not going to become safe and secure. Can you paint a picture of what a safe, secure leader looks like, guys? We can try. I have to get out my <laughs> curriculum notes. but uh, Well, you just what you remember. What you remember. I think a safe leader uh, walks in forgiveness. Definitely. Both receiving and giving. Mm -hmm. Healthy confrontation is one. What I was going to say is that before you can confront someone, you have to forgive them. If you, if I, Elijah, if you and I get offended with each other and I try to confront you before I've forgiven you, then I've got to, I've got to get something from you. Mm -hmm. I, I've, so I've got a chokehold on your neck and I'm saying, Elijah, you need to give me an apology or you need to give me this in order for me to feel good inside. Mm -hmm. But if I've already forgiven you, then I can go to you without an agenda and I can share my heart. Mm -hmm. I can share my emotions with you without accusing you. I can say, mm -hmm. hey, this is how it felt when you said that or did that. And then I can allow you room to respond. And it's my future. My health doesn't depend on your response. Mm -hmm. See, so forgiveness is a big key, both receiving and giving, uh, getting rid of shame. Mm. Uh, there's so much shame. I, I'd say blame and shame are the two debilitating factors mm -hmm. in people's lives. Blame and shame. Mm -hmm. There are blamers, there are shamers, and there are both. Mm -hmm. And uh, blamers are people who believe it's everyone else's fault but their own. And there's more and more blamers in society today than ever before. There's mm -hmm. so much no-fault insurance. There's no-fault divorce. There's so many people are not taking responsibility for their lives and actions. Mm -hmm. But there's also shamers. Shamers believe it's, it's their fault. Everything's their fault. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and shame, of course, is the basic idea behind shame is not I did something wrong, but I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Not I made a mistake, but I'm flawed. And, um, and, you know, getting free from shame and blame is a process. So healthy, safe leaders don't live in blame and shame. 
That, so that's those, are, good. those are some examples of health, mm -hmm. you know, and secure is being so rooted in the father's love yeah. and I so agree. rooted in healthy identity that you understand your value, that you don't have to prove it to anyone. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And I think that's, a lot of leaders, crazy. I think there's a lot of um, tension in that reality that I have to prove. I think even as women, you, you have to prove what I have what I can bring to the church, what I can bring to my ministry, mm -hmm. what I can bring to lead. But, you know, I, I mean, just for me as a, like from the time I was a girl, I've always, like, I've always been asked to be the captain or the coach or the team leader or run for president or be the board person per president and anything I joined, everyone wants me to be the leader. So it's a gift that God's given me, but I'm not trying to prove that I can mm -hmm. do it. And mm -hmm. so um, I think there's something in our identity that has to be secure. Well, there is something that has to be secure and who God made us, who God made me in order to lead in a healthy way. Because I'm not trying to get something from someone. And I no, think no. sometimes we, as leaders, we do that. That's excellent. Well, can you guys close us out by leading us into releasing our blaming and shaming and moving into a place where we we are becoming safer and more secure in god yeah in terms of like a prayer you mean like yes a, yes yeah what if i start mark and then you can finish beautiful okay father i thank you for um just for who you made in every person who's listening on this podcast or thank you that you made me thank you that you made mark and elisha god thank you that you made us unique and we have tremendous value in your eyes Lord, thank you that you care about us. And Lord, wherever um, in my heart, in our hearts, um, where we're trying to get value from something that you don't call us to get value from, Lord, would you cause us to repent? Lord, I only want to have my value from you. I don't want to be striving for something that you've not called me to strive for. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us that heart, that we would look to you and our faces would be radiant and we wouldn't be covered in shame. Yeah. Amen. Father, I thank you for Elijah. Thank you for who he is, the man you've created him to be and the future that you have for him, God. And I just bless him on his journey right now. Lord, I just see such amazing integrity and hunger and desire. And Lord, not that he asked me to pray for him, but I, I just bless him, first of all, as our host and as one of the catalytic leaders in Leaders Alliance, God, that you would just any vestige he's probably mostly free but just any vestige of shame or blame would you just deliver him god mm -hmm. and lord as i pray for him i pray for myself i pray for cheryl i pray for all of us leaders god that you would deliver us from the realms of blame and shame god i pray that there'd be such deep security in your love god that you would root us and ground us as you said in ephesians 3 in your love that we couldn't be shaken by uh, people's stuff, that, that literally it would be water off a duck's back. Of course, it hurts at times, but God, I pray that we could recover quickly because our hearts are in the right place. And Lord, I pray where people find that they are bound in blame or shame, I pray they wouldn't add more shame to that. I just pray, God, it would be a joy to be in the light and it would be a joy to be on the road to recovery. Lord, I pray that we would love the journey I pray that we'd love the journey more than arriving, God, and we would love the process, as Paul said, not as though I'd already attained, but I press on to the upward call of God and Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would press on and we would love the journey instead of comparing. Lord, I pray you deliver us from comparison. Lord, there's so much comparison, especially with social media. 
I pray, Lord, we'd be delivered from the need to measure our worth or our effectiveness by others. But God, I pray that Jesus, you'd be our standard and we would all realize we fall short and then we would just go after you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, thank you for coming on Leaders Alliance and we'll talk to you all next week. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you.